Reveille, 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 and fallen formation operators for another episode of the SITREP Podcast, your source for historical military wargaming news, discussion, hobby, and hey, once in a while, even a little bit of gameplay. I am your host this morning, Ariskany Jim, and today I am joined by first, he is the Gandalf the Wise to my Gandalf the Goof, Mr. Piot. Piot, how does the day find you, my friend? It's not too bad. Just woke up, and it's actually 6 p.m. my time, so, you know, life couldn't be better. But I've been at work today, and we have a shitty weather, so a cup of coffee is what you need. Yeah, we might have some pretty bad weather uh, ourselves here pretty shortly. We got uh, Tropical Storm Fiona coming towards us. It's supposed to turn north before it hits us, but we'll see what happens. Uh, but meanwhile, we also have our returning champion, the George Washington of the SITREP podcast, the one who started it all. Welcome home, Bill SITREP6. Mr. Thank Bill, how you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you, sir. Uh, glad to be back. And, uh, man, I, you guys have done an amazing job. Um, and uh, I've been missing you guys. So uh, it's good to be back. All right, so well, thanks very much. Let me go ahead and bring back our cameras here. All right, so here we are live and in person. Our cameras are all in sync. Mine's reversed, but you guys know what I look like. Um, left to right, right to left, I'm equally ugly. But here we are uh, for another episode of the Sit Rep Podcast. If you guys are watching this, please remember to uh, drop a like on the video. It really does help us out. We have been absolutely curb stomping uh, the uh, subscribers lately. We're getting like two or three a day lately, which for us is a big deal. Yes. Um, but we're now within, we're across the River Rhine. The River Rhine was 900. We're now at the five-yard line that was 950. Uh, we're now past 950, so hopefully you guys are going to help us out uh, with you know comments, subscriptions. If you're not already subscribed, please subscribe. If you're already subscribed, drop a comment, even if it's, hey, Jim, you still look stupid. <laughs> or I just realized now I forgot to shave before the podcast, whatever. Um, or drop a like, or hell, drop a dislike. Any interaction on the YouTube algorithm helps us out. Um, of course, we much prefer a like rather than a dislike, to be honest. But with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and kick off the show with some hobby review. Mm -hmm. So, hobby. What's going on? Uh, Piotr, I know you said you've been really busy at work lately. Um, have you been uh, doing any hobby lately? or? Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's September. So what uh, what better can you do during September than invade Poland? So I invade <laughs> Poland. <laughs> there you go. In Poland Defiant in 1939, so you can see both episodes uh, online. Uh, sadly, uh, as usual, the Germans won, but uh, I managed to stop them as, uh, as long as I could. Mm, uh, we played uh, the first uh, day of the of the campaign during uh, during the videos, so you can check out and see if the game is for you. It has a nice uh, cheat pool mechanic into it and some few... Uh, cool ideas put inside like I really like the introductions when it comes to the airplanes and how uh, You need to put your panzer divisions alongside with some infantry divisions or mechanized divisions So they they are not fully operational when they are alone uh, this is also uh, very uh, very intriguing for me because most games actually uh, do not impose this penalty upon uh, upon panzer units or you know, armored units and this one does so it's really so it's really cool and I like the game I finished it uh, they did not manage to capture uh, Warsaw but uh, still uh, the odds are overwhelming and the Poles are not meant to you know win 
they just need to delay the journals as best as they can. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a typical, you know, uh, not every, the, 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 the hidden Achilles heel of historical wargaming is not every war, not every battle uh, sometimes makes for the best war game. Or if it does, it's going to have to have some, this is especially true for modern war. Uh, you got to have some hell of uh, asymmetrical victory conditions. We'll get some more into that when we get to the British versus the Iraqis. Holy God, talk about a curb stomping. Um, nevertheless, it is very, very possible for the Iraqis to win that game. The Iraqis came that close three separate times, uh, if you check out that stream. But, um, yeah, those were great videos. Uh, it does take a little bit of time for our community maybe to get used to operational scale wargaming, or maybe we got to figure out a different way to uh, present that uh, to you guys. Mm -hmm. Operational scale wargaming is a different beast. I, I, I love it. That's kind of where I got started back in the early 80s. Uh, you were mentioning interdiction strikes for our interdiction operations for aircraft. Um, yeah, it's fun to drop bombs on tanks, but especially in World War II, before anyone had had like precision ordnance, that was what air that's what air power did. Everyone likes playing calling in an airstrike in bolt action or flames of war. That's not how aircraft are usually used, um, especially in World War II. You used it to bomb the bridge 50 miles back behind the lines, and what that would do is that when you set up your table, you're up against five enemy tanks instead of 20 enemy tanks because they're having a tough time getting stuff up uh, to the front line. So that's the introduction that you're talking about. Yep. But that's so, actually all. Because okay. I'm, you know, curve stump when it comes to work. We're introducing a new electronic data, data management system at work and it's finally going to run on the 3rd of October. So uh, I'm not getting really too much sleep lately. <laughs> Apparently, uh, curb stomp is going to be our word for the day. We're just going to say curb stomp 17 more times. Um, curb stomp. Curb stomp until it just loses all meaning. Um, so, uh, Bill, I know that uh, you've had some changes in your life recently. Uh, you've been moving around. I don't know if you've had any time for hobby, but if you have, um, like, like, what's been going on with you? Well, um, we literally did what you see a lot of people doing these days. We sold everything. And moved out of our 3,200 square foot house, and we're now living in a tiny home of about six, seven hundred square feet. Um, literally, our house is big as my old master bathroom was. Uh, I was gonna say that's half the size of my apartment. My apartment's <laughs> already too small. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, um, when we decided to do this and move to the Florida Keys, you know, there's not much real estate down here, um, so you, you're really tight for space. But we sold everything. I mean, I'm hobby-wise, I kept a few board games um, that I could play. Um, but miniature-wise, I have nothing. So I actually looking to rebuild. And Jim and I talked about this the other night. Um, I just downloaded the rule set for uh, Fistful of Toes, the third edition. Um, so it's modern-ish warfare. You know, they go from 1940, no, 1915 to 19 or to 2015 is this rule set covers. Um, and I'm going to be buying uh, three mil miniatures and coming up with a series on how to do war gaming in big battles in a very small space and, you know, how to store it and all that. So that's kind of what I'm looking at. And I've made the pledge that I will only do one system at a time. I will not buy something and go, oh, I'm going to buy that and buy that. It's going to be because I'm limited on space. So you have to yeah. kind of concentrate, you know. Yeah, the best way to defeat a lead mountain is to not let it start in the first place. Exactly. Or at least uh, keep it uh, manageable. Definitely. 
All right. So um, for me, and uh, there's been, well, it depends on what you call hobby. I mean, we've been doing a lot of board gaming lately. So the first thing we did about uh, two weeks ago was uh, 1 to 1800 uh, Battle of Savo Island. Mm-hmm. We sort of missed the 80th anniversary on that. 80th anniversary on that was night of August 8th to 9th, 1942. So we were a few weeks late. Um, but that's okay, because when it comes to the Solomons, man, there are an absolute list of uh, naval battles uh, to pick from. And I, I always say this a hundred times. I'll say it just once more. If you're interested in getting into naval combat, especially in World War II, here's the place to start. The battles are all relatively small, and they're relatively even, which is really weird for naval games. Naval games are usually over before they begin. Um, Jutland, Lady Gulf, Midway. I mean, these are the big famous battles where, okay, with possible exception of Jutland, there's a clear winner. And it was never really in doubt. Um, here with all these uh, tiny little uh, battles in the Solomon Islands, no, it, it could definitely swing either way. So um, we did this uh, two Sundays ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we could have done it in, in digitally, but we decided to do it in miniature. Um, it poses challenges, guys. I won't lie. And then I'm, I'm clicking around other people's YouTube channels and other gamers and stuff like that. Not many people do games live on camera, miniature games. So we may do more of these uh, recorded in the future because doing this stuff live is um, a bit of a challenge, especially when you don't really know the rules. But that part's on me. Um, we were also featured on uh, the website owned by our old friends on, on Tabletop. So they've been going through a series where they have been uh, going through different uh, content creators. Uh, so they had, uh, I think Panzer Kaput was on there. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, our friend Warhammer Grimace, he's another Gulf War veteran. He has an e-zine that he manages. Um, so there's a whole bunch of people that have their own you know, YouTube channels and have their own content creators. And they've been going through them one at a time doing these short little interviews. So, I mean, it was a great opportunity to put our logo up in front of a whole bunch of uh, you know subscribers again. And, of course, it's always fun to uh, you know interact with our old friends over in Ireland. Yeah. Never that never passed up a chance to do that. Uh, let's see what else has been going on. Okay, so we also did because we wanted to, we've been doing a lot of World War II lately, uh, and we're going to continue doing a lot of World War II because we kind of, we're kind of marching through the 80th anniversaries, and um, we're in the fall of 1942 right now. This is where World War II finally turns around. There's a lot going on in September, October, November of 42. It's one of the busiest times of the war. Um, that said, we did want to sort of, um, remember our roots a little bit and make sure that we did at least some moderns. So with the bad news in the UK over the last week, we decided to show our friends over in the UK a little bit of love. What better way to forget your troubles than take out your frustrations on some Iraqi armor. So we set up our, our old friends, the Royal Scots Dragoons guards again, and had them, you know, absolutely kick the crap out of uh, 52nd, um, specifically 90th Brigade, 52nd uh, Iraqi mechanized. So this was the big uh, division. Uh, the first UK armored fought at least five or six divisions over there, but the biggest one, or the, the, the best equipped one, and they fought them several times during a running battle about 36 to 48 hours. Uh, was the 52nd, and they they really, you know, the 52nd wasn't really a division by the time these guys got done with them. Um, but to Piotr's point about uh, the invasion of Poland, this is where we really see some um, serious asymmetrical victory conditions. 
a long time ago, well, not really a long time ago, for the 30th anniversary, I set up pretty much the whole front end of 1st Marine Division against uh, the front end of 3rd Armored and 5th Mechanized uh, Divisions in a big battle that they had going through the 2nd Berm Line, uh, 26, no, 25 February 1991. Um, it's the big 1st Marine push into southern uh, Kuwait. Long story short, the game lasted uh, 12 hours. Uh, it took like 15 turns. The Iraqis were completely tabled. It was a game about six times the size of this one. And when you figured up the points, the Marines actually lose that game, uh, like 156 to 162 or something. I mean, it's a narrow loss, but the victory conditions that are set out by uh, Tactical Command Middle East, Tactical Combat Middle East by Toshesh Miniatures, that's the addition of Panzer Leader that's on display here. Um, it's available at War Games Vault and also on their own website. You can lose the game as a coalition player, believe it or not, super fast. I'll put it to you this way. You get one point for every Iraqi unit destroyed, just period. Um, that's pretty much all you get. The uh, Iraqis get a point every time one of your units gets pinned down because somebody in that unit has like a shell splinter or has to go back to the aid station. You get two points as the Iraqi player if that unit was a tank or a helicopter or an aircraft. You get five points for everything unit that's destroyed, unless it's a tank or an APC, in which case then it's 10 points. God forbid it's an aircraft, it's 25. So you lose one aircraft, you have to table the Iraqi player without taking any further casualties just to break even. Oh, by the way, by the way if you fire your weapons into certain hexes, the damage of your weapon like that 52 for these challengers counts as Iraqi victory points because collateral damage. You're not allowed to shoot your weapons into certain axes. So um, without incurring massive penalties that it goes for offboard artillery and airstrikes as well. Um, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, I mean, you're, it, it tries to put you in, in the shoes or in the boots of a Gulf War commander. You really got, you have so much firepower at your disposal. Um, you gotta be careful, uh, you know, where it goes. Um, speaking of which, as I was making, uh, we sort of had a bonus stream where we were, re where, where we were rebuilding these, uh, British units. Um, it turns out I didn't really like the tables that, uh, we featured on our, uh, where the sausage is made series, um, sometime last year. So surprise, surprise, I'm going through it again. This is just a small part of the table where we're looking at some of the more modern weapons. You see there is some methodology in where we're getting this. So basically I've been doing some Excel hobby, if you even you know want to call that hobby. And for tomorrow, we are looking at, again, some World War II um, and some special forces. So this is the LRDG, or the Long Range Desert Group. Uh, the night of 13 to 14 September, they launched Operation Caravan. That was part of a larger Operation Agreement. This is in part of the buildup to the Battle of Al Alamein, where these guys launched, along with the SAS and the SIG. There's a whole bunch of different special forces uh, at play here. Um, but these guys were the Long Range Desert Group, and they launched a raid on an airfield at a place called Barkham in northern Libya. And this, here's where they cleaned out like 35 or 40 Axis aircraft uh, and really helped clean out, uh, really helped weaken Rommel's air support that was going to be available to him in the upcoming battles, plural, of Al Alamein. So that's pretty much what's been going on with me um, as far as uh, hobby goes. This game is going to be live tomorrow at 2. Uh, so we hope that uh, you guys are interested and you check it out. Awesome. Now, before we yeah. go into – I'm sorry, go ahead, Piotr. 
<laughs> the British are going to kill the Italians with the badass stubble that each of these guys is having on his face. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it took me a little while to, to render that. All right, so um, I do the best I can with uh, with these images. Uh, I try drawing them by hand, like we did for our uh, thirteen day, uh, thirteen days, thirteen hours uh, project. Um, they come out okay, but it's better to just you know grab what you can find. Uh, these guys were just too clean shaven, so I had to give them some kind of beard. Uh, this little SAS LRDG guy, uh, of course, he already has his beard. So in order to match, I had to go ahead and. Uh, Give him a little bit of Don Johnson there. <laughs> nice. Because um, in all seriousness, and we'll, we'll go into the details on this um, in tomorrow's stream, the Long Range Desert Group, I mean, no disrespect to the SAS, but the Long Range Desert Group, man, these guys are absolutely insane. Um, the deserts that they went through were not the deserts that everybody else went through. So where the, where the North African Desert War takes place is along a really, really thin coastal strip of semi-habitable desert. I mean, people do live there. There are roads, there are train tracks, there are airfields, there are towns. I mean, yeah, it's the desert, it's harsh conditions, but where these guys would operate is to the south of that, straight through the Qatar Depression, through the Libyan Sand Sea. I mean, the absolute heart of the Sahara role for encountering random Jawas and sand people or, <laughs> or, or you know, Iraqi sandworms, you might as well be on another planet. And there's literally no roads. Their missions would be 1,200, 1,400, sometimes 1,500 miles. And the vehicles only have enough gas for 700 miles. So how do they do that? They have, okay, here's a desert that goes from where you live in Poland all the way to, uh, let's call it London. Between, between Poland and London is nothing but sand. No roads, no towns, no palm trees, no oasis, no rail line, no ports, no airfields, no nothing. No camels. Like, literally, animals don't live out here. It's absolutely a moonscape. Somewhere in the middle of that, you'll find three rocks in a pile, and buried 20 feet under that or all your, is all the water and fuel you'll need uh, to go the rest of the way. We staged it there six months ago. Those three rocks should still be there. Good luck. <laughs> and these guys would do it. They were they were mostly um, New Zealanders and uh, Rhodesians at the time. They later would uh, get some crazy Irishmen in there as well, uh, some Scotsmen, and it got a little bit more eclectic after that. But some some serious, uh, seriously capable people. Yep. In the desert, you need a beard to survive. <laughs> <laughs> the point is. You've got like a canteen of water that lasts you six months. Um, do you spend any of it on shaving? Is where, uh, before I got off on my ridiculous tangent. Um, yeah, so you see these guys with beards all the time. There's a lot of famous photographs of them. And this is also where the SAS got their start, but we'll get into that uh, in a little bit. Um, meanwhile, we got some people here in the community. Uh, Jen has retracted a message. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Gaz is with us. Hello, Gaz. How you doing? Yes. So Gaz says, how do you guys feel about doing an engagement as a training exercise where peer nations such as USA fight off against the uh, UK and their other allies? Uh, we've got the counters for it. Um, I don't mind doing it, uh, at least in my game systems. Whether or not I have the armies available in miniature doesn't uh, – that's actually a pretty good idea, though. Mm -hmm. Set up something like Fort Irwin out there or 29 Palms or National Training Center, you know. Two friendly forces, you know what? It basically becomes red and blue, or whatever. Well, they just did that down at uh, JRTC, down at Fort Polk. Uh, there were some elements of the British Army down there fighting 
you know, their their American counterparts. So um, they actually forces uh, YouTube channel. I think it's forces is the name of it. They actually had a video series of the Brits at Fort Polk doing uh, fighting our Op Four guys. So it was interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I don't think uh, who who was it? Was it two uh, two seven Marines? Who were the Marines out of Twenty Nine Palms got tooled up by the Royal Marine Commandos? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think they've left that town yet. No, but um, you know what? There's a lot more to that than what the news put out there. It it, it sounds like it wasn't as one sided as they made it out to be. So. Well, it's also like you know putting. 82nd Airborne or 101st Airborne up against, you know, Delta Force or, hey, you know, hey, 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 hey. no, I'm serious. <laughs> there, there are, there are your, your regular grunts. Then you are your, like most war games have this. They have regulars, veterans, and elites. Right. Okay. Marines for every, you know, I, I can say this, you know, I'll, I'll swear on the Eagle Globe and anchor right here. <laughs> um, so they're better than the average army person. Uh-huh. Of a similar of a similar MOS, mm-hmm. of a similar MOS. I mean, I, I was a supply clerk. I wouldn't want to fight like an army ranger. I'd, I'd get the shit kicked out of me. Clearly, back in the day. Um, but I tell you what, I'd kick the shit out of an army supply clerk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. long as he's a supply guy. Um, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Also, this is you know 30, 35 years ago. Supply chain um, fights. <laughs> I, hey, where did you get that field jacket? The closest we came to actually getting into actual combat was when I'm not kidding. The British tried to steal some of our Gore-Tex. Uh, Gore-Tex was brand new back in those days, and uh, it got cold over there. Let me tell you something. And then, you know, before you know it, there's a hole cut in the chain link fence, and someone has cut the lock off the back of one of our bay doors or something. And huh. we see some people wearing our Gore-Tex. Well, wait a minute. That's Back in those days, it was uh, – I mean, nowadays, everybody has Gore-Tex. But back, in that, back then, it was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of an item. All right, so uh, cool. Um, let's see. I guess also says I know it isn't historical, but we do train on exercises in Germany where we engage each other in war games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, the Panzer leader. Uh, let's see if I still have that sheet up. Because um, we do get into that. We do. I mean, whenever we show like, oh, why is it that the Challenger doesn't hit as hard as the Abrams? Even though they both have 120 millimeter guns, so because the, L, you know, the, the British um, 120 millimeter gun is a rifle. What do you have against rifles versus smoothbores? Or you're just American? No, it's because, and again, I show all my work. Is the point of the spreadsheet? Um, what's really hurting the British guns here is their ammunition is in two, if not three parts. So a platoon, again, this is a platoon-based game, a platoon of Abrams will put more firepower, a greater volume of firepower, at a given range over a given time span than a similar troop of challengers, only because the challengers have to load their ammunition in two or three parts. Meanwhile, 125-millimeter guns for Soviet or later Russian-era guns have automatic loaders, which, believe it or not, are not as fast as human loaders. Um, then why put them in there? It's to make the tank smaller and theoretically uh, less of a target. Uh, recent events have sort of disproved that little notion. Um, but at least that was the idea. So all those factors get worked into those spreadsheets, and we try to show it to where, okay, you can put 
a U.S. Army, you know, you can put together a mechanized brigade or a, a tank-heavy team or whatever it is you want to do, a tank-heavy task force, uh, up against, you know, Royal Scots Dragoon Guards and see what would happen. Um, and you'll get a pretty good result. I mean, depending on terrain, depending on tactics, depending on mission, uh, a whole bunch of other factors. But at least on a technical, uh, as, as like a thought experiment, you, you might actually come out with a pretty good, uh, a pretty good answer. At least that's the idea. Yeah. It's a good explanation. All righty. Um, supply chain fights can be scary. Gaz says, I had finger trouble. I needed to correct some mis oh, misspelling mistakes. No worries. Perfect, Gaz. No, put that back. It was hysterical. Oh, no, we missed a joke. That's what we get for not paying attention to chat. <laughs> Gaz apparently said something hilarious. Jen was laughing, and then Gaz pulled it out of the chat. That's okay. Um, let's see. Meanwhile, our community has been um, – it's actually been a little bit of a slow couple weeks in Discord, but there are a few items we did want to go over. Oh, Real quick, uh, I've got some long-range scissor group guys that nice. we have in 28mm. I would yeah. do this game in 28mm tomorrow, although, again, we're not going to be doing too many more miniature live streams. We'll still have some recorded content. I did get some new headphones. We are trying out some new mics. There are some technical limitations we've been bouncing up against, not just in the Savo Island stream, but also the two previous seven days to the Rhine streams, especially now that I finally got a tank game I can play. Um, I do want to do more miniature content. It's just a little tough right now, at least in live, uh, in a live stream format. So the only reason we're not doing, well, that's one reason. Number two, I don't have any Italians in 28 millimeter and I don't have, uh, you know, JU 52s, the big German cargo planes in 28 millimeter. Those would be like two feet across. Mm -hmm. So it's a big air force raid, a big airfield raid. I can't really set it up in, uh, in miniature. It's just a lot easier to do it virtually. Okay, so first of all, our community has been, uh, again, uh, putting up some stuff. Uh, this is uh, our friend uh, Dylan, or LSR2590. He's been on the stream a bunch of times. In fact, he was a uh, guest here on the podcast once. Uh, he's been building some British sailors for the Modest War of 1882. So this is one of those tiny little wars that nobody ever talks about. Um, apparently there was a, um, a bit of a independent slash, uh, religious revolt in the Sudan. Um, in the, I think it started off in 1879 and the British didn't get involved with right away. Um, they started attacking other people in the Sudan where have we heard this before Darfur. Uh, then they started attacking other nations, Egypt, Chad, or what was, what would become today, uh, Egypt, Chad and Ethiopia. Finally, the British got involved and it turned into a little, you know, Typical uh, late Victorian era colonial uh, fracas. Um, so apparently these are not Marines, but they are just sailors given rifles. Uh, again, they're so strapped for manpower that you know they use uh, whatever guys they can. So again, yeah, it's weird to see number one sailors as combat infantry, and then on top of that, on desert terrain, yeah. uh, as we see they're on his bases. But you know, clearly that was the um, situation at the time. Our friend uh, John Sowerby has been building uh, more stuff for War of the Roses. This time uh, he's working on some uh, bills and bows. So like these are archers, and it looks like some sort of pikemen or pole armsmen. Um, yeah, so there are the archers. Um, he's gearing up to start playtesting a new game that's coming out called Blood and Crowns. Apparently he knows the designer, and he's going to help the designer with some playtesting. So that's why he's been working on this for weeks, if not months. Uh, building up more and more of this, uh, these horses. Um, I've also, oop, I'm going the wrong way. I also um, checked out our friends at uh, Dust Creek House down in uh, 
near downtown Fort Lauderdale. It's a small gaming club here in Broward County. Um, but it's a great gaming club. Actually, it's a lot bigger than I thought. I shouldn't say it's a small club. It's, it's pretty big, their total membership. Um, but John was uh, mixed up in a bit of a tournament of, oh, Lord, let me see if I can try and even try to pronounce it this time. Um, Dos Bellas Antiquitatis. Uh, hopefully, I came somewhat close to pronouncing that right. This is why everyone just calls it DBA. Uh, DBA is a small miniature game. I think these are 15s uh, miniatures. 50 millimeter miniatures for medievals and ancients. Uh, these guys use it mostly for ancients, but it is very uh, useful for uh, uh, for medievals as well. Uh, it was run by uh, James uh, Dundorf, and uh, it's a fast little game. You can get uh, you know three or four games in an afternoon uh, if you're determined. Uh, obviously, he's got great miniatures here, and it was a little bit of a tournament. It's some kind of qualifier for something that I think leads up to an event in Historicon. Uh, so 2022, we already had 2022 historic on, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're already gearing up for 23, I guess. Um, yeah, as you can see, the tables are only like, it's, it's designed to be played on a, on a pub table. So the, the table is like two by two. Okay. Um, huh. and the game like is like six pages long. The cheat sheet is two pages, like front and back of a regular letter size paper. And, um, I saw the game. It takes all of about, you know, uh, an hour tops uh, to get through a game. Um, so it was pretty good. Yeah, I love the miniatures. And, yeah, that's pretty much what we've got for hobby. Yeah, so good to go. So, Jim, did you actually see the game in person or was it just via Discord? <laughs> oh, no, I was there. Okay. Did they uh, tell I you what kind of miniatures those were? Who made them? Oh no, I didn't. I didn't ask who the manufacturers were. Um, I'm just pretty sure this. I'm, pr I'm not even 100 sure on the scale. I'm pretty sure it was 15. It looks like uh, 15. Yeah, uh, it could be 10, but I doubt it. Now, now that I think about it, yeah, it's, it's got to be 15. But yeah, they had Romans versus. Um, oh God, I had that stuff all written down somewhere. Asulacids, and then there was another game going on the corner, and then they all switched. It was like a five or six person like like mini tournament and again it's a qualifier now they're whoever won that tournament is in some sort of like uh, quarterfinals i think it is and uh they'll play again uh, later on in the year against some other people and again i think it's building up something in historicon or something called huracan there's another small mm -hmm. convention taking place i think it's next week so now it's not confirmed because I'm not promising anything, but I might be taking a game of Seven Days to the River Rhine down there next Saturday um, to actually play, you know, to introduce that to an actual club. Uh, so I guess I better start reading the rules again because <laughs> my grasp of the rules are still a little shaky. Uh, but yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Nice. So that pretty much, again, it was kind of light uh, last two weeks in hobby. I guess people are busy. I know I've been busy. So there hasn't been a whole lot going on for hobby um, in our Discord. So everyone in the uh, I was watching, if you want us to talk about your uh, project or if you want us to, uh, you know, feature your uh, miniatures, battle reports, gameplay, you know, whatever it is that you've got going on, uh, drop it in our Discord. The uh, invite to our Discord is automatically set up to um, accept you as soon as you click on the link. It's in the description of this video. You might have to click on see more to find it at the bottom of the description, but you know the link once you see it. You click on it, you're automatically in. Yeah, yeah Huracan is next weekend. so Awesome. Yep. 
All right, so we were talking about him, and we apparently summoned him, uh, John Sowerby. You were uh, just showing your, your DBA photos, uh, John. Uh, winners of the DBA tournament here qualify for uh, regionals on April 1st. Okay, cool. The miniatures are mainly Essex, 15 mil. All right, sweet. I was right about the scale. Uh, but no, I didn't. I forgot to ask who the uh, manufacturers were. There were also some Bayuda miniatures in there as well. Sweet. All right, thanks very much for coming out, John. Appreciate it. All right. Let me put my phone up here so I don't have to look down to read comments all the time. All right. Worry about that later. Oh, no, I lost my sweet. All right, so this is normally where we would pivot to the news. Um, our friend Marty is not with us today, clearly. I can he do a little is... news if you want me to, Jim. If you, uh, oh, okay. Uh, let me pull up our page because we get a lot of stuff posted to our Facebook page. So uh, there was one I want to talk about. Um, let me switch over to podcast page. Two seconds here. not going to give me my page. Let me switch to my phone here because that'll be easier. I'm trying to do it on my tablet. Uh, all right. But there's some British paratroopers, of all things, uh, for World War II uh, being produced. Um, Why would we want to talk about British paratroopers? I don't know. Why would we ever talk about paratroopers in this podcast? But uh, No, I'm just talking about on September 17th. Right, and it is the, <laughs> yeah. it is the anniversary of Arnhem. Uh, a bridge too yep. far for many people. So uh, they, I actually saw that they had, uh, they jumped into Holland uh, this weekend um, for the anniversary. So of course I can't find the one page, but uh, yeah, it's um, Empress Miniatures, I believe, is put, putting out uh, British paratroopers in 28 mil. So they look really sharp. Um, Andy Hobday still over there working on some gangs of Rome, uh, two mechanics. Uh, if you haven't seen that game, it's, you know, a skirmish battle set in obviously ancient Rome. Um, that's a good one. Also Rubicon models. I don't know. Do you guys follow Rubicon models at all? Um, yep. they are producing a whole bunch of Vietnam th stuff. I mean, it's looking amazing. Uh, there's definitely some things to cover there in the future. Uh, for Rubicon, but right now they, they're showing off. Um, they do a ma you know what? Rubicon models, they kind of cross the bridge between a model kit and a wargaming kit uh, to some extent. So it, it is pretty amazing. I mean, they just showed off a kit, uh, the Centurion Mark V with a dozer blade on it. So okay. just amazing stuff. Um, also, the Tabletop Gaming Awards came out. Uh, you guys need to look at those and see if you agree with their choices. I'm not exactly sure if I agree with those, but uh, do definitely check out Tabletop Gaming. Um, other than that, let me see if there's anything really historical. We get a lot of stuff that's non-historical related to on our page. I've been trying to actually um, moderate that a little bit more, um, but... This is on the SIDREP podcast uh, yeah, Facebook page? Yeah, on our Facebook page, yep. Okay. So, uh, Battlefront is going to be putting out a bulge. 
Uh, Battle of the, I'm assuming it's Battle of the Bulge. They say Bulge British, but it's October 15th. Um, there'll be a new book coming out and new models. I mean, they're not new models. Say, they, they, they got to be reissues. Maybe I'm cleaned up a little bit, but... Oh, Battlefront, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I got, yeah. Gotcha. Flames of War. Yep. So, that's pretty much uh, newsworthy stuff that's come out. There's a lot of other things. I mean, if you're looking for something modern-wise, uh, Jim... No, you weren't at the um, Walking Dead boot camp with us. Um, but at the Walking Dead boot camp, Foreground showed off their mall in 28mm, the shopping mall. I saw it on camera, yep. Yeah, so it's funny now that Black Sight Studio has released a shopping mall in 28mm uh, as of yesterday. So, And this one's actually a two-story uh, mall. So if you're looking for something for a modern-ish... Uh, post-apocalyptic, whatever. I mean, there's uh, Black Sight Studio does some pretty good. They've kind of picked up the helm from Foreground. Well, you know, Foreground doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, but as far as pre-colored terrain and stuff, you could go to Black Sight Studio. And they used to be a sponsor of our program, so uh, give them a look if you're looking for some good MDF terrain. Cool. That's pretty much it. What I found for news. Um, yeah, a little bit of house news. I mean, clearly Bill is back, so that's the first big thing. Um, we'll be gearing up for some more LL Lemain content in the future. Um, I've got all that in 15 millimeter. Maybe doing some battle group, uh, not battlefront, battle group. Yeah. Um, I've got the books uh, for uh, for that, and of course I've already got like tons of miniatures um, for 1942 and early 43. So we'll keep a lookout for that. Piotr and I might be doing some more Desert Leader, um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, we don't want to do Panzer Leader all the time, even though it is consistently our most popular content. Every time we put Panzer Leader up, we gain at least five to ten subscribers. Um, that thing does four or five hundred views, and um, it just blows up on other Facebook pages where we you know post our stuff. But we don't want to ring that bell too often, but. And again, we did technically Panzer Leader just last week. So we'll be doing some other stuff. And there's also some miniature content coming out soon as well. Um, I ho I did get some video of that tournament that we were mentioning before uh, with John down at um, uh, Dust Creek House. I'm going to try to put that together into some pre-recorded content. Also, hey, it's Ancients. I mean, we're technically we do all historical. It'd be nice to you know sort of stretch our legs a little bit. Why always do the same things over and over? So we'll actually have some Ancient content, hopefully up in the next week on the outside um as soon as i can you know splice everything together it was very it was very rough and ready video i did i was down there with a cell phone i didn't have like a you know a big ring light and a you know a camera and a whole you know mobile studio or anything <laughs> like that but um yeah so we're definitely uh, keeping an eye on that we are starting to gear up it's already mid-september good god where is 2022 gone it's already mid-September, which means we are about six weeks out from our – what has become a somewhat uh, in uh, – what's the word? Unofficial tradition, the SITREP Halloween special. Mm -hmm. So it's been literally set up for a year now. Ever since we did that SITREP skirmish into the bowels of a abandoned Russian biolab, uh, bioweapons lab, where we ran across some Cthulhu creatures, people have been talking about colonial marines versus aliens. Nice. Yay. Oh, skirmish. <laughs> Yeah, um, there have been people waiting literally since last Halloween uh, to get in on that game. So uh, I'm going to reach out to them, give them first call. I don't know if they're still interested. They always say they are, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I'll keep everyone posted because there's like 
a few people that want to get in on that game. Maybe we'll run it more than once. Um, I mean, with the amount of work it's going to take to put all those figures together, we might as well run it more than once. But it'll be fun. Uh, and that's about it. We've got we have some LL main coming up, more Solomons, and more Seven Days to the Rhyme. Um, nice. You know, so cool. Any uh, anything with uh, news or any comments uh, from you, Peter? You're being way too polite and, and quiet over there. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm just listening. But when it comes to the news, if don't know if you know the manufacturer Micro Art Studios, they are doing some pretty Infinity terrain. But lately they have released a nice bundle of Normandy terrain. It's already pre-painted, 28 millimeter, and it's looking gorgeous. So if you want to set up a small table uh, with, a, you know, an idyllic uh, Normandy village before British paratroopers lay down there, you might do that as well because it's really nice. Uh, that's uh, for the news, and I really like the info about Empress putting some more uh, stuff out because I love, I absolutely adore and love their miniatures. I have a ton of sadly unpainted stuff uh, from them when it comes to the Vietnam era, um, but I think I will take a look at the figures uh, in the near future. As soon as I come back from my a little trip that I'm going on next week uh, to see the First World War battlefield. And battlefields. Oh, cool. uh, so uh, we shall see how that goes. I will also try to post some uh, items on our Discord page, some, you know, pictures and maybe some videos if I will manage to record any of them. But it seems it's going to be a tightly packed uh, trip. So one week uh, of sightseeing, also battlefield sightseeing. So I'm looking forward to it because I need some rest lately. So this is out by like Tannenberg. You're heading. I mean, we're talking about like the Eastern Front battlefields, right? Nope, the West. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, so you're going into uh, France and Belgium and you know places yeah, like that. Yeah, France, Belgium, so Ypres, uh, Cambrai, and you know stuff like that. We nice. shall see. So, Fjord, I was just looking at the MicroArt Studio page about that terrain, and you can literally buy an entire town. It's like 400 yep. euros, but it's beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, nice thing is you don't have to paint it. You could weather it a little yep. bit. I mean, they've already weathered it for you, but, you know, it. it you could set it up on a tabletop and, and play bolt action or battle group or anything, and it's beautiful. So, nice, nice call. Yeah, and also if anyone is interested in 6 mil, uh, you can find this uh, uh, Gods of War Lee, the guys from Poland, they have this 6 millimeter, six millimeter uh, 19th century system that started with American Civil War, of course, uh, why not? And now they are doing Togo, so the 19th century, uh, you know, uh, naval battles, uh, I believe the release is coming soon. So they are posting some nice renders of ships on their Facebook page. I believe we uh, we showed them uh, a few podcasts back. Mm, some of them, uh, Marty showed them in the news. And from what I have seen lately, I believe they are going to visit one of the shows uh, in Poland when it comes to miniatures. And they are going to present the system. So it should be out uh, really soon. Uh, so this is also something that might uh, catch interest with some people. Awesome. Oh wow! So, um, so uh, <laughs> Jen puts in the in the chat. Is it bad that I? Uh, is it bad that I'm happy Jim has found some gaming outside of the house? <laughs> um, I doubt it, Jen. 
because guess what? You're probably coming with me. Uh, 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 you can buy me a beer later, Jen. Okay, so now everyone's making fun of me in the chat. I see how it is. I'll send Jim with a six-pack down next time he comes down. Yeah, I don't really drink beer uh, that much. Um, but no worries. Oh, so yeah, okay, Jen wants in the Aliens game. We got it. We got it. Uh, and then John also says, uh, Piotr, you have to hit uh, Eper for the uh, Menin Gate ceremony. Oh, yeah. That's... All right, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, we shall see how uh, how the program is set up, because uh, I don't have really time to check out everything that's going to be on the uh, showed during the trip. Uh, one thing for sure that we are going to visit one of the airfield bases that was a uh, that was Luftwaffe, then it was uh, NATO, and now it's turned into a museum. So not first world war, but a bonus. And then we are going to okay. The parts of the Atlantic for uh, uh, the second. All right, there's uh, some there's there's some background noise up here. I hope everybody can hear them. Uh, sorry about that, everyone. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it too. Okay. I don't know what it is. Hopefully it'll pass in a second. Cool, there we go, that's better. Okay, so, awesome. So our topic today, um, guys, uh, I'm always kind of at a loss to come up with a topic. I'm pretty much just, what's going on lately, either in the world? Um, we usually try to stay off Ukraine most of the time. Uh, we'll dip into it once in a while um, just to make sure that I don't say anything galactically stupid. Um, but also like what's been going on either on the team or in the community. And with what's going on with tomorrow's uh, live stream game, uh, what we're looking at here is um, – the World War II roots of modern special forces. So, I mean, as everyone knows, okay, here on the Sitra podcast, we do uh, historical wargaming with a focus on moderns, i.e. post-1945. So modern warfare has, of course, through the decades become, you know, more and more asymmetrical, uh, limited, and non-kinetic. So special forces have become more and more important because more and more conflicts in the world, you can't send, you know, tank divisions and fleets of bombers to take care of the problem because it's just going to be counterproductive. So we're be, uh, nations all over the world really are becoming a lot more um, reliant on two things. Number one, insurgencies if you're poor and number two, special forces if you're rich. So uh, when it comes to modern conflict, it's a lot more special forces. So we see a lot of special forces, especially in modern skirmish games. But from where do many of these units and forces uh, draw their roots? Um, there are whole games out there that are just about special operations in World War II. Uh, Zero 0200 uh, by um, Gray for Now Games, I think, is, is one of them. There's also a special operations, I think, was an expansion for, uh, for Force on Force that Ambush Alley came out with. So Ambush Alley, Force on Force is, of course, moderns. But then they went back to World War II for you know commando operations like 1940 forward. Um, so I was wondering if you guys had any, you know, thoughts about that. I'm pretty sure, Bill, you're probably going to know a lot more, uh, know a lot more about this than I do. The Rangers, I know, got their neck deep in, or they got started in World War II at Dieppe in 42. Were Rangers around before that, or? Not as a formal unit. Um, I mean, you could trace Ranger back to the Revolutionary War, uh, even before that, really. But in modern days, uh... Yeah, um, 
you you did have their action there, but a lot of it was based on work with their counterparts in the British Army, you know, at Dieppe and everything. So, um, the Rangers really came about um, closer to, you know, preparing for D-Day, you know, as the, the um, infantry fighting force that we know it as, uh, where it really was organized. Uh, you know, we really got to see, see the... Um, organizational charts and uh, how it was really formed really before right before D-Day. Um, I think there were, they saw some limited action in Italy, but I mean D-Day was kind of like the the turning point for what we know as modern day Rangers. Um, you know, assaulting positions in, in an infantry based you know, company level or greater um, because that's really what Rangers are. They're not, they are special forces or it Special Operations Forces. I think we need to differentiate between Special Forces and Special Operation Forces because it gets confusing. Um, but they, they really were tasked for taking airfields and other hard targets or doing what the normal infantry during World War II weren't set up to do. And you got to remember, at the time, Rangers were not airborne qualified. So you literally had what Rangers do now divided between airborne troops and the ground ranger troops so uh you know as you see in d-day with the 82nd 101st the first was it first airborne or sixth airborne i can't remember now things first it was uh, it was um yeah it was sixth at pegasus bridge and that's why first yeah. went into uh arnhem so you know a lot of those those actions you saw during world war ii uh is what modern day ranger battalions do so um it, it, it was just a really good growing process, you know, uh, that you see. You know, those guys climbing the, the rope ladders and the grappling hooks up into the, you know, into the barbed wire. Going, You know, was it uh, Saving Private Ryan is a good example. I know you're, it's not one of your best movies, but they do show what the Rangers did encounter. So um, it is a good starting point. Well, I can tell you this for free. I've actually been to Point Du Ho and uh, peeked over that cliff. And good God, man, um, I, I wouldn't want to do that in like broad daylight, you know, 30 years ago, you know, when I was still in shape, uh, much less with, um, you know, Germans with, uh, you know, stick grenades and MG42s up there, you know, yeah. waiting for me. That's a cliff. That's not an exaggeration. That is a that is a like 110 foot cliff, uh, almost straight down. Um, the big 14 inch battleship shells, um, those craters are still there. They're a little bit filled in now because it's been 80 years, but um, the German concrete is still all cracked and shattered, uh, not only from the battleship shelling, but also the uh, demolition charges of the Rangers that day, and also um, the engineers trying to blow that stuff up, you know, after the battle was over. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a lot of that going on. So it's it's it's, it's an interesting place to visit. If I'm not too mistaken, I think there were two battalions of Rangers. Um in Overlord, and then they were both supposed to hit Point Two Ho, and like a last-minute decision, they took two companies out of Second Battalion, and they moved them over to Omaha, and that's where we see I think Bravo and Charlie Companies, Second Rangers. That's where we see uh, the fictitious uh, John Miller character in Saving Private Ryan. He starts off. Um, they don't they don't explicitly say this, but if you actually kind of jigsaw the history together, he's obviously the captain of uh, Charlie Company's Second Battalion. Um, so that's kind of you know you can kind of infer that 
by where he is and, of course, his rank and so on and so forth. You know he's not Baker uh, Company. Uh, I shouldn't have said – did I say Bravo before? I meant to say Baker. Um, we know he's not in charge of Baker Company because Baker Company – there's a line in the movie where he says – they're basically taking away my company and the survivors are being moved over into Baker company. Yeah. So, um, but most of the Rangers, I think the other six companies in those two battalions, it's usually four companies to a battalion. I think, uh, Rangers might have a slightly different setup and, uh, yeah, they went up there at point to ho and that's, that's some scary stuff yeah. for sure. So, uh, just real quick referencing the Ranger history tab. Uh, there mm-hmm. were six, Ranger battalions during World War II. Six battalions. Six battalions. Uh, oh, first, how many were how many were at D-Day? So uh, let's see. Say. At D-Day, uh, two battalions. At D-Day, it had six rifle companies. Obviously, size of a standard infantry battalion. Uh, but first, third, and fourth uh, were basically annihilated at Anzio. So they were in the Italian campaign. Uh, and sixth Ranger was in New Guinea, and then went into the Philippine campaign. So nice. Yeah. So, yeah, the 2nd Ranger was, uh, basically they based the Ranger companies or battalions off of British commandos. So, really, if you think about it, British commandos are kind of like the forefathers of all modern-day special operation forces. Plain and simple. They they pretty Um, much are. I mean, a lot of... Yeah, I can't argue with that because it's their first operations were at like Trondheim, Norway, or something like that. And like right off the bat, right after Norway fell, they were back. They pretty much got booted out of Norway late June. The war in France was already ongoing before the war in Norway had fully wrapped up. And then almost like two, maybe three months later, uh, they're back in. I'm not sure of the exact location of Norway, but British commandos were back in. So um, that kind of. Thank you. That segues over to our next force, uh, the British Commandos. Uh, again, this goes to your point, Bill, about whether or not, like, okay, there's special operations teams. I, I, I'm not sure of the exact, exact nomenclature. Let, let's agree on some nomenclature. There are special ops teams or there are special teams that do, like, 12-man able teams. They're like Delta Force. There's, you know, usually a six-man or a 12-man team. I think it's as small as it goes. Navy SEALs, you know, true elite operator tier one you know badasses Mm -hmm. and then you get guys that are almost just like really really good light infantry yeah um which are i mean if you want to call them special forces i guess that's up to the each individual or whatever and i just bring this up because i think this is how the british commandos kind of started because the british royal commandos when they first start going into places like norway and then later on places like uh sun and stuff like that they're going in like four and five hundred strong they're going in as like understrength battalions and, of course, Dieppe was practically a division, and that was a disaster. Operation Agreement, which we will feature tomorrow, was also a disaster because they basically tried to launch a temporary raid on Tobruk. It's like, okay, British, help us out here. You can either invade a place with a set piece, hit and stay, assault, or you can launch a special forces raid. Yeah, yeah pick a struggle, brother. You know, pick pick one or the other. <laughs> right. This middle of the road stuff, you know, where, well, well, it's a raid, but not really. It's a division. It's, you know, it's... None of them worked. None of them worked. Um, now, hopefully, op- or fortunately, Operation Caravan, which we'll be doing tomorrow, was a success. But it's the only part of Operation Agreement that actually worked. There was like four separate operations all at once. And really only one of them worked. Because I think a lot of the other ones were just, you know, too big. 
And again, Marine Ra- uh, Marine Raiders, which we'll talk about in a second. Army Rangers, you're talking about you know three, but almost half the order of battle was effectively wiped out in Anzio. Although Anzio is another, that's almost another whole sit rep yeah, episode. Yeah, you could have a whole uh, episode. Anzio, yeah, yep. my boy Lucas, holy crap. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes when you get like too many special forces guys in, in, in like in one space, it's they're not just infantry. You're not supposed to kind of use them like that. So I think a lot of uh, what we see in World War II history and also in our war games is like you were saying, Bill, like the evolution of the idea. Because people in World War II, special operations, special forces were so new, at least how we think of them today, that they didn't really know how to use them in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah take into account, for example, the Polish uh, silent unseen, as they were called, or Tichochemny in Polish. So they mm-hmm. were the guys uh, trained by SOE. And Oof. so there were these special operations paratroopers that were dropped into occupied Poland during uh, the years 1941-1944. So I believe there were something about 316 guys dropped to Poland, uh, occupied Poland, of course, at that time uh, during the war. And they were doing some sabotage stuff and they were hoping, uh, helping the home army. So they fought during the Warsaw Uprising. They were, you know, them, uh, destroying supply lines, uh, doing stuff with blowing up bridges and stuff like that. So 116 of them, I believe, died during the operations, were captured by the Germans or the Soviets. And yeah, uh, figured that out. So you drop a guy uh, from an airplane, uh, I know, two, three thousand miles away, uh, (laughs) and you land in an occupied country. That is, that was your country, actually and you wreck havoc over there. So there are many uses, and yeah, so the British started it all. So you're saying like 316 guys, they didn't drop them all in one place, in like battalion no. strength, though. They were, yeah. Yeah, no. is, there were special operations raids like San Nazaire. San Nazaire is often held up as like a big success. They sent like 400 guys in there, six came back, and uh, that was like six months later. They managed to escape through, I think, northern Spain. Um, but nobody else came home. They all wound up being captured because there's no way home. So I think when it comes to special operations, you know, especially in World War II, um, numbers matter, and you can't get carried away with too many. That's the whole point of special forces is it's got to be a small force. Yeah, and when they were dropping the silent unseen guys, there were you know, the drops of like three or four guys. So they were bringing uh, some uh, information from London, some from the Polish army in exile to the home army command so there were also couriers dropped with them and you know they were supposed to be the elite of the elite of the home army and they actually were so you know everyone has their own Mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely and the Polish Um, drum originates from them i mean yeah you can go a step further during world war ii the polish paratroopers that were in arnhem they were freaking awesome i mean you know, uh, you could put them up against any of the airborne troops of World War II. Those guys fought, and I have to believe it's because they, you know, Poland at the time was under German control, and they were like, we have something to prove. Because to be honest with you, if you look at history, the Polish soldier, airborne pilot, was not treated well by their counterparts in some aspects. And they had to prove that, one, they were worthy of it, and two, they were just badasses. I mean, no doubt about it. Uh, I have a lot of respect uh, for Polish troops and Polish Airborne. Um, I've had the honor of working with a few back in the day uh, of, of Polish uh, 
military. So, you know, you don't mess around with those guys. You know, unfortunately, when I was a kid, we had the joke, you know, the German army went invaded Poland and Poland countered with horses. But, you know, I don't know. It takes a lot of balls to ride a horse against a panzer. Plain and simple, you know. So uh, I, I, all the most respect for those guys. Thanks, Bill. We're luck over here. <laughs> if you uh, if you if you think about it, it makes you know a logical. It makes a, a great deal of logical sense. Okay, so it's one thing to oh, you're you're a British citizen. A war started. Um, the Germans might be invading. Oh wait, never mind. They're not invading. Uh, you know, I'm supposed to do my part. Or if you're the if you're in the United States, the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor. Everyone's going down to the office and signing up. If you don't pretty much no one's going to talk to you for the rest of your life. Um, The attitude in the country was very different back then. So, I mean, okay. Um, Especially the, uh, in the Americans, I mean, nothing against the greatest generation, but 95% of those guys were drafted Um, as opposed to, okay. We all saw what happened in Poland. Okay. Um, The ones that would fight. and, And I think one of the reasons why, I mean, I totally agree. I'm not arguing against what anybody's saying, but I think part of the reason why the average Polish pilot, paratrooper, um, you know, any any of the branches that they served in were almost expected to be more badass than a lot of their counterparts is these are the guys that made it out. I mean, like two million Polish wound up as like prisoners of war by the end of that by the end of that uh, September October campaign in '39. So. If a couple hundred or a couple thousand or maybe 10,000 of them made it out, these are like yeah, the cream rises to the top. Okay, these are the guys that made it out. These are the guys that made it into a friendly country. Their war is supposed to be over. They're not being drafted. There's no conscription. No one's expecting them to do anything. In fact, they just got the hell kicked out of them in one of the most one-sided campaigns in, in you know military history. They're coming back for more. Okay, so right off the bat, you know, there's a certain fiber in, in just the, the the motivation and the background of the you know recruit or cons- not conscript, but you know the, whoever it is that's actually joining the force. That um, yeah, there's going to be you know something there. Paratroopers were the same way. You couldn't get drafted into the paratroopers in World War II. It just wasn't legal. You couldn't be drafted into the Marines. You had to be a volunteer. So anyone who's going to volunteer. I mean, I think they even say that once in Band of Brothers. I, you know, why did you join the paratroopers? Well, I don't want to serve alongside conscripts. I want to serve next to other guys that want to be here. Right. Because um, there is a definite difference. There is a definite difference. Yep. You need the purpose. Okay, so um, let's catch up here with the uh, with the chat. Uh, John says zero two hundred uh, looks great. Um, yeah, I haven't checked it out myself, but I know it's out there, and I know kind of what it covers, kind of what we're talking about here. Um, John says, my understanding on the World War II Rangers is that they are based on the commanders. Okay, yeah, we're kind of having the same conversation here. And the Special Service Brigades. John also adds, uh, the fun stuff with D-Day and Special Forces are the Jedberg teams. I'm not familiar with that term. I'll be honest with you. The other raid that's great is the uh, Brenneval raid to seize the radar emplacement. Yeah, there were raids all over the place. Um, and the fun thing with the British is that a lot of them were also the Americans, too. I mean, let's face it. The Americans were in Dieppe. Dieppe is an absolute cluster, um, <laughs> infamously so. Um, 
And in terms of Dieppe, okay, cool. The commando side is the only side that worked. Lord Lovett's troops uh, took their objective and pulled out in good order. Yeah, I was going to say, Lord Lovett was at uh, D-Day, so he must have survived. But uh, the Canadians got absolutely fed into the wood chipper at Dieppe. The Canadians did not. Yeah. No no fault yeah. of their own, God knows. But the Rangers also, I think first Rangers went in there, and it, it didn't go well um, at all. Um, but super fast, uh, one of the other ones that we're going to talk about, especially tomorrow, is Long Range Desert Group. Again, we're going to talk about this a great deal tomorrow, so I won't spend too much time on it today. This is where it gets complicated, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is to almost head off some comments that we might be getting um, as far as where Long Range Desert Group begins and where the SAS you know, picks up. Um, these two are two separate forces. Uh, they worked so closely through, through part of their early history that they almost become indistinguishable. Uh, and then they sort of divided again. Um, Long Range Desert Group was first. They, like a lot of special forces in World War II, started off strictly as reconnaissance. They weren't. They, they barely gave them weapons. They weren't supposed to shoot at anybody. And it was only later on in the conflict that they started to actually take more aggressive action. Long Range Desert Group was a desert survival organization. They had guys from uh, New Zealand and Rhodesia that were running around in those deserts for like the Imperial Geographical Survey or something. You know, basically go out there and find what's because there's literally no one's been out there ever. Um, you know, go help us map these areas. When World War II starts, how are we going to keep track of these Italian forces and later on German forces that are coming up from ports as far away as Benghazi and Tripoli? Uh, that's like 1,500 miles behind the lines in those days. We need to get eyes on those ports. Who can drive out there and actually come back with some information? Well, these guys were, were the ones. The SAS kicks off a little bit later in the conflict. Um, November of 41, I think their first operation was part of Operation Crusader, an absolute disaster. They lost a third of their force and completely blew the mission. It was damn near the end of David Sterling's career. Um, I know the SAS are bad guys, but everybody's a noob sometime. Um, and then when they found more success, I feel, we're going to see a little bit of this in tomorrow's game, where, okay, the SAS are the combat badasses, but they can't find their way around the desert. Almost nobody can. Let's hook them up with the LRDG. The LRDG is going to get them to the target, and then the SAS is actually going to carry out the strike. Meanwhile, the LRDG is like, holy crap, those are like explosions and people are shooting at each other, and we can do that. We, we can throw grenades at Italian aircraft and, you know, stuff like that. So then you see stuff like Operation Caravan. So the two sides almost started to swap roles. They learned a great deal from each other um, to where they became damn near synonymous because, again, they started off with different missions. The LRDG learned the SAS trade. The SAS trade learned the LRDG trade. Before you know it, you had two forces that were so similar. They also, like, traded members, you know, and they all worked together a lot. So it was almost it's almost pointless trying to keep track of the different to two different forces until you get to um, the end of 1940, uh, the end of January of 43, where Sterling, number one, Sterling gets captured. And number two, the LRDG is out of a job. So the SAS takes a big hit when their founder gets captured, spends the rest of the war in a prisoner of war camp. And number two, LRDG, well, the, the, the desert war is pretty much wrapping up at this point. They made an attempt to expand their use into the Balkans. It didn't really work out. So this is the reason the SAS has survived. And, of course, is around today, along with the SBS. And the LRDG, not so much. Um, nowadays, or I shouldn't say nowadays, 30 years ago, you've got the SAS doing scud hunting missions um, in the Gulf War. Kind of what the LRDG was doing in some of the very, very similar vehicles. Um, 
you know, 50 years later in 1991. And you got guys that didn't survive the war. Uh, there were no Marine Raider battalions after 1942. The Marines walked away from that concept. Marines wouldn't have special forces again until MARSOC came along. I'm not even sure when that started. I can promise you that was not a thing when I was in. Uh, I think um, that was 2015-ish. Yeah, I mean, so they're very recent. Yeah, I mean, they've only been around, I mean, less than 10 years. So I, was, I, I won't lie, I was amazed to hear that. Well, there's a joke. Sorry, this will be at the expense of the Marines. But, you know, the Army has Special Forces, Delta, Rangers. Navy has SEALs. The Air Force had pararescue, PJs. The Marines felt left out, so the Department of Navy gave them something. They called it MARSOC. So. The Marines? I thought you were going to say all <laughs> Marines are special. Well, I, you I know, we used to be told that all the time. How the Marines were so elite and special. That's the story that they hand out in the Marine Corps. Is yeah. When you're in the Marine Corps and they ask, how come we don't have Green Berets? How come we don't have – I mean, there's Marine Recon, but that, that wasn't really like in a, a special force. Why the Marines – and the answer that they always hand out within the Marine Corps is the United States Marine Corps is an elite force. That might work for some jarhead noob right out of Pendleton or uh, MCRD Paris Island. It's not really the truth. The truth is, and this is you see this in how quickly the um, Marine Raider battalions were kind of extended, not distinguished, uh, like disbanded. We just kind of got you know shit can the idea. Um, Marines for the this is why I was surprised to hear about Marsoc when you know that development took place. Marines have had a borderline, I don't want to say fear, but they've been very very wary of establishing a special force and becoming thought of or being thought of as a small elite unit because the Navy SEALs aren't a branch. They don't have a seat on the Joint Chiefs. Right. Royal Marine Commandos are not a branch. Uh, Delta Force, not a branch. The U.S. Marine Corps is a branch. We have a seat on the Joint Chiefs. There have been Marine Generals as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We don't have our own department, um, but we do have our own branch. And Ever since the Marines, since 1775, the Army's been asking, why, why do we have these, why do we have two armies? Um, and you read that in the literature. When uh, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal got out of a landing craft on Iwo Jima, on day five of Iwo Jima, he looked up at the flag on Mount Suribachi, and he looked over at, uh, I think it was Holland Smith, Holland Mad uh, General J Jim Smith. And he's like, that flag on that mountain means a Marine Corps for the next 500 years. Um, the Marines have always been the smallest brother in a starving family, and we're always watching out to being just kind of quietly snuffed out of existence by either the Navy or – well, the Navy kind of takes care of us, but really the Army, because especially after World War II, Anzio, Salerno – I mean, Anzio is a bad example, but Salerno, D-Day, uh, the Philippines, New Guinea, we can jump out of a boat too. Yeah. You know, why, why do we the, the army demonstrate that they could conduct amphibious operations? Um, so why why is there a Marine Corps? Why don't we just make the Marine Corps like this elite little badass special force that does runs around and kicks ass? The Marines have always been wary of that, so they've been very averse in setting up a special force for decades, if not centuries. And uh, apparently, the the wheel finally turned. I don't know. Um, but yeah, for a while, like those those Marine Raider uh, battalions were disbanded, and it was like the the special daggers that they had and their patches, and like everything was kind of removed from the record. And um, 
they've they've walked away from that idea for a long time. It's kind of surprising, but hey, such as so, uh, that's pretty much just food for thought. Yep. Hello, Benny Johnson. Uh, thanks for coming in. Yeah, Ben says, "Damn, look who it is." That's right. Sid Rub Six is back. Hey, Ben. Apparently, we were doing such a bad job. He had to come oh. back and save us. Yeah. We were going all over the. <laughs> And he's talking about marine socks. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, I'm used to it. You know what? It's all. It's it's doesn't even bother me. I just I I we already know. We already know. We don't have to get passive aggressive and defend ourselves because we just know it's it's it's, a, it's all a thing. It's fine. <laughs> all right, but uh, yeah, I won't beat up the whole idea of the uh, SAS and the. Um, Long range desert group because yeah we're gonna be talking about a great quite a, quite a bit tomorrow, so um, yeah then you've got guys like the Foreign Legion who were technically around before World War II. Um, again that might be more on that whole like light elite light infantry uh, sort of a, a side of the spectrum here. Um, other than that, yeah. Now I did look up Polish Special Forces uh, yesterday and I did find them. I found the one you were talking about, like the Grom you were talking about, Piotr. Uh, yeah. I did I didn't see yeah. a lineage back to World War II, but I admit I did like five minutes of research. So, well, there's thanks no for straight lineage. You know, they just uh, they suppose supposedly try to you know uh, how to say it in English. Uh, they go back to the tradition of the you know silent unseen. They 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 trace their traditions back to them. And when you talk about Grom, you have to talk about the silent unseen, uh, despite the fact that the, we were then occupied by the Soviets for 45 years and we were co a communist country. So, so yeah. yeah, this is where we get into some of the uh, we're talking about special forces that didn't survive uh, World War II, the Brandenburger regiments. Okay, Germany has GSG-9 nowadays. Do they really draw a lineage back to the Brandenburger Regiment? Even if they did, they probably wouldn't admit it because 1939 to 1945, Germany has a whole identity issue that they might not want to get into, um, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, they were on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we also had, uh, what was it, a fourth special volunteer detachment of the Soviet Navy mixed with the GRU become Spetsnaz. Um, again, there's been so many changes over there. I mean, technically, these guys were around in the uh, Russian Civil War as far back as 1919. But then Stalin comes in, kills everybody off. The Germans come in, they kill everybody off again. Grushev comes in, he wipes out everybody who was, uh, Khrushchev, I should say, uh, wipes out everybody who was loyal to Stalin. And then uh, it just, you know, there's so many changes. How many times can you, you know, tear down the house and rebuild it before you've lost sort of a, you know, not everybody has like these long hundred year old regiments like the British do, where they can literally trace a direct line back to God knows when, God knows where. Um, sometimes it's not quite that, you know, the the, the garden, uh, the all the soil in the garden gets flipped over too many times. Um, but, you know, just uh, kind of rambling at this point. All right, guys, so we've been up for about an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, again, kind of a short episode today. Uh, any other uh, thoughts or comments uh, from Bill or Piotr? Uh, just real quick on, on this whole topic of the special operations, special forces. You know, how do you relate this to gaming? It g shows you that there's many levels to play. So, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be like Delta Force or U.S. Special Forces, Green Berets. You know, there are 12-man teams in ODA, but... 
Uh, so, and you have such a varied period. So I, I, I challenge people to explore outside the typical skirmish games right now. Um, you know, um, Spectre and some of these other ones out there. Look at some of the bigger battles. You want a really interesting special operations battle? Uh, check out the Invasion of Panama. Close oh, to cause. my heart, you know, Operation Just, just Cause, cause yeah. because I can tell you right here, there's a huge debate. The SEALs should not have taken the airport. That should have been the Rangers. And that, and you'll see the aftermath of what happened to the SEALs at the airport. So um, there's many scenarios that you can play and game, you know, from World War II on up. So uh, I just watched, uh, I can't remember the name of it, watched the, how the SAS really came into the limelight before, eight, was it 80, 81, when they took the L London Embassy, you know, for Iran, uh, that yep. raid. Uh, before that, they were really kind of in the shadows, really, and were kind of, you know, almost plausible deniability. And then there they are on worldwide news raiding the embassy. So there are so many different things outside of the typical Spectre and some of these other game sets you see out there. Explore them and play them. And there's so many miniatures now for modern uh, special operations that the world is open to it. So enjoy. What we'll have up tomorrow is... Uh, Valor and Victory, I guess I should say. So four to eight men in the counter. Uh, the historical raid had 47 men. Um, so not quite like a British commando with 500 people in it and not a, you know, six or 12 man, you know, elite operator one team sort of in the middle there. Uh, I think this is one of the smaller ones. Operation Agreement had thousands. Whether or not that's a special operations raid, Probably not. Also, look at the way it turned out. Yeah. Absolute train wreck. Um, not unlike uh, Dieppe, which was happening at almost the same time. Uh, like literally a month before, August of 42 and September of 42, like back to back, just disasters with these bloated, oversized uh, special forces raids. Um, so anyway, uh, so yeah, we'll be doing a little bit of that tomorrow, but absolutely, yeah, for the community. Um it's tough to do larger battles in a skirmish system, but again, there's other systems that uh, you could do. Force on force is a pretty good. You, you can do relatively large battles in force on force if, you, if you're really serious. Or again, there's other unit-based games. You know, where not every miniature on the table is just a single guy, because it'd be tough to do. You know, uh, Sun is there at one-to-one -one scale. I mean, there was like 300 guys, at least, plus all the boats, plus the Germans. The Germans are about. Depending on when in the battle, between 500 and 1500, you have to use some sort of unit-based mechanic for that because it's crazy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember Warren was doing something like of a project when it comes to Saint Nazaire some years back. Yeah, yeah, I was I was hooked up with them for a while. <laughs> and we 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 had a lot of uh, brisk discussions on the phone um, and on Skype about how to do this, and I'm like. Doing this at one to one in miniature is going to be really hard because you're going to have like 800 miniatures on the table. He's like, "Yo, it's going to be epic." I'm like, "Yeah, it'll be epic if if it ever gets done." Here are some options, and you know, um, I still want to do it in Valor and Victory. One of these days, I we just missed it. It's it's March of 42, right? Um, with San Nazar, so we, we've missed the 80th anniversary. But one of these days, we're going to do San Nazar because um, sometimes miniatures are tough. I mean, we, we did Midway. We were talking about doing Midway before Bill left, and you know, we were going to print out all these ships and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is, this is a 
big, big battle. Yeah. There's like there's like 290 ships if you include everything in there. Uh, can we maybe? And we wound up doing it virtually. And even that, with me and Rasmus, that was two four-and-a-half-hour streams. That was a nine-hour battle. Um, sometimes you got to, you know, pick a level mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, assess you know, the best system for it. That's true. So, uh, yeah, John says the commandos after D-Day really became light infantry. So, yeah, we definitely played a lot with uh, Royal Marine commandos and Royal Para commandos in, uh, what was that, 3rd Commando Brigade in the Falklands. Uh, so multiple uh, battalions from different regiments were in that one. Um, trying to remember them now off the top of my head. Let me not get into it, but 3rd um, Para was definitely there. One of the Royal uh, 44th and 45th. Here I go, just thinking I wasn't going to get into it. <laughs> Several Royal Marine Commando battalions were there. Uh, we've done some of those battles, again, in Valor and Victory. And that's where they just become elite light infantry. So absolutely agree, uh, John, for sure, sure. Uh, does, does this mean that we're doing, you know, a lot of stuff with special forces that we are also elite or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I, I literally came up cause I was like, Oh, what's our, I was like trying to type up a topic last night and I was like, what's a good topic. And it's literally like, we, I don't want to rename the segment, but it's like, what's on Ariskany's brain this week, the sad ruined remnants that is Ariskany's brain housing group. What, what's, what's smoldering in those gears, smoldering, sparking gears. And I'm, I'm literally designing a special forces game in world war two for tomorrow. So I'm like, hey, let's talk about Special Forces in World War II because I don't have room in my brain for two topics at once. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else has to start coming up with topics. Otherwise, we're just going to be talking about what Jim's going to be gaming tomorrow. But in all seriousness. All right, guys. um, Unless there's anything else uh, from the team, um, I'm catching up here on the chat. There doesn't seem to be too much else. Um, Ben says, good to see you. I guess, yeah, he's definitely talking to you, Bill. Thank you. Jen says, just a taste. Keep them wanting more. Yeah, so we're definitely going to get into the LRDG and SAS tomorrow. There won't be any SAS on the table, but there will be discussion because the SAS was attacking another airfield at the same time somewhere else. Again, these two teams, uh, these two forces really did work together a great deal. Uh, learned a lot from each other uh, during the pretty much f- f- late 41 and early 42. Uh, late 41 and all 42. By 43, they'd kind of parted ways. Other than that, yeah, I'm pretty much done. Uh, there's nothing else in the chat, nothing else from the team. Guys, looks like we are rounds complete once again for another episode here on the SITRA podcast. Thanks very much, as always, uh, of course, to Bill and to Piotr, and, of course, everybody who came out. We had a pretty good audience today. I think we peaked at, like, um, eight or nine members uh, watching us. Again, if you're checking this out on YouTube, give it a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't cost anybody anything and it really does help us out since i've been pinging people to please give us a thumbs up our subscribers have gone up because the algorithm notices you and puts you out in front of more people Most definitely. and um yeah the more people see us the more people like us because we're awesome <laughs> I mean, I, I, i'm not I'm, I'm not gonna lie anymore in all seriousness guys uh this is a risky gym signing off we are rounds complete tango mike for listening as always Check us out tomorrow, and um, also we'll have some more content for you in the middle of the week. But for now, we're signing off. Thanks again, and we'll be in touch very soon. Take care, everybody. Take care.
perfect timing because the, the rumble in the background came on 